All right, we've been studying the book of Judges this semester, and we're actually coming to the end of the book, and tonight we begin this portion uh, that starts with the last judge in the book of Judges, Samson. And so it's interesting because he gets more press than any of the other judges, and he's actually the worst judge in the book. And so what we're going to see is that he takes up four chapters. And so we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at the life of Samson. We're going to start tonight uh, with chapter 15. Again, I want to acknowledge and say thanks to Matt Howell at the University of Tennessee for his insights into this passage before I pray. So let me pray and uh, we'll dig in. Pray with me. Father, may... um, you be with us uh, tonight. Uh, come through your spirit. Uh, would you guard us from distractions from the outside world um, for this next few minutes? And would you revive our heart and revive our soul with the good news of the gospel? I pray that we would uh, hear this, uh, that it would penetrate our heart, that it would move us, uh, that it would be like we're hearing it for the first time, that's going to take a deep work of your spirit, and we are dependent upon you, and we ask you to come and help us, and please do that. Father, you tell us that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, so come and pierce us in a sense with it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Many of you are probably familiar with Donald Miller. He's written several books. You've probably read a lot of them. One of the books that he's written is called Blue Light Jazz. It was really popular uh, several years ago. So the book's uh, a few years old. But he's got this incredible chapter in which he kind of draws out the selfishness of human beings. And what he says in this particular chapter in Blue Light Jazz is he puts it this way. He says the most powerful addiction... On the planet is the addiction to self. And he goes on and he says this, The greatest lie any of us has had to battle is that life is a story about me. He says, My life felt like that, that life was a story about me because I was in every scene. In fact, I was the only one in every scene. And if someone walked into my scene, it would frustrate me Because they were disrupting the general theme of the play, namely my comfort. And listen to what he says. Remember, his name's Donald. He actually goes by Don. He says, I discovered that my mind is like a radio that only picks up one station. And the station is K-D-O-N. All Don. All the time. You see... Sin has done something to us. Uh, And Genesis chapter 3 is where we see the fall of mankind into sin. And because of sin, it causes us to live life only in reference oftentimes to ourselves. And if you were here last week, we looked at the ruler or the judge Abimelech. And one of the things we learned about Abimelech is that he was extremely controlling And we used Abimelech to kind of show us and to be a mirror for the way that we control. 
And we said that everyone in some way, shape, or form, whether we realize it or not, tries to control parts of our lives in order to get exactly what we want. And so last week, if Abimelech uh, was extremely controlling, what we see with Samson is someone who is extremely self-absorbed. You see, what we see with Samson, and despite, and maybe if you were a, a churchgoer growing up or went to Bible school or involved in children's Sunday school or had a children's Bible, we often have this very glorified view of Samson. <laughs> the guy with the great hair. The guy with the great looks. The guy that's uh, really uh, strong. Uh, but what we see, and we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, is that Samson wasn't all that great. That Samson, in fact, was the worst, as I mentioned earlier, of all of the judges in the book. He's the quintessential self-absorbed narcissist. And unlike us, myself, who oftentimes we have these very sophisticated ways of hiding our self-absorption, Samson was nothing like that. He had no... He made no effort to hide his self-absorption. In fact, he put his self-absorption on display for the world to see. And so here's what I want us to get tonight. I want this passage to, in some way, teach us about our own, maybe our hidden self-absorption that we try to um, hide and make make it look very sophisticated. Or maybe our even our overt self-absorption. I hope this passage sheds some light on that for us tonight. And again, as as we've seen over and over, it actually becomes a mirror uh, for us to see ourselves. Three things that I want us to see. Uh, Number one, a picture from this passage of what self-absorption can look like. Secondly, um, a problem for those who are self-absorbed. And then thirdly, what's the cure? What's the remedy for our self-absorption tonight? So let's look at number one, the picture. Now I realize that self-absorption, selfishness, can look lots of different ways, okay? You're different people, your self-absorption and your selfishness reveals itself in lots of different ways. We could stay here for two hours talking about the different ways selfishness comes out of our life and out of our heart. But we see a couple of things in Samson, uh, the way it's manifested in him, uh, that can maybe help us identify some selfishness in our own, in our own hearts. I'm going to look at three kind of sub-points here uh, and spend a little bit more time on the last sub-point. But the first thing we see, or the first way we see it, is we see that self-absorbed people have no reference and self-awareness of anyone else around them. Look at verses 1 through 3. We didn't read this because, again, four chapters of his life. But in chapter 14, Samson gets married. It's a week-long wedding. That's the way they did it back then. Weddings were a week-long celebration. And on the last day of Samson's wedding, he loses a bet, comes unglued and gets extremely frustrated, flies off the handle, goes and kills uh, 30 men, and then storms off to his dad's house. Then look at chapter 15, verse 1, which you have before you. Apparently, this is no big deal to Samson, that he's totally ruined his wedding, 
and totally left the wedding before it was over. That, that didn't affect him at all, that maybe it might have affected other people. He's completely unaware of other people. And as Donald Miller says, as we looked at at the beginning, um, he was living a story, and he was the only person in the scene, so to speak. And so here's my question for you, just uh, one application question, and we could talk about a lot of them. Uh, Are you aware of the people in your life and how what you do actually affects them and hurts them and wounds them? Are you aware of how your selfishness affects the people around you? Do you get frustrated when someone comes into your life and disrupts the general theme of your life, namely your comfort? Second thing, self-absorbed people look at other people and see them as being disposable. In other words, people that are self-absorbed use other people to get what they want. You see this in verse 1. Look at what it says. I will go into my wife in the chamber. Yes, that means exactly what it sounds like it means. (laughs) Samson is saying, I'm going to walk in and have sex with this woman that he assumes assumes this woman is his wife. And the picture is that she exists for his pleasure and his pleasure only. And so he uses her. And later, you see in the narrative, he doesn't get his way. And if you have a Bible, chapter 16, verse 1, he doesn't get what he wants. And so he goes and hires a prostitute. Okay, and so people are disposable to him. He uses them. And so a question for us to ask is how are we using people that we're in relationship with? And we can use them in lots of different ways. Obviously, you can use them sexually for your own good pleasure, but we can also use people, which is prevalent on this campus, socially. We can use people socially in order to get what we want and to get the power that we ultimately want. So that we're accepted. Thirdly, we see self-absorption can be seen in people that are not teachable. You see, self-absorption shows itself in a person's life when they refuse to listen to anyone. Namely, God. In other words, a person that is self-absorbed looks and says, this is my life. I know how it should run and what is best for me, and no one's going to tell me what to do, not even God. And we see that in Samson's life. Again, we couldn't read the entire story of Samson, but you might know this part of the story, but he was a Nazarite. He was born, and he was set apart to God as a Nazarite. Numbers chapter 6 tells us what a Nazarite, what that meant. He was to abstain from alcohol. He was not to cut his hair. He was not to have contact with a corpse. Not only that, when he chose a wife, he was to choose a marry someone who was in covenant with the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And Samson refuses to listen to any of that. Samson comes, and at every step of the way, he is disobedient to God. He says, God, I do not care what you say. I don't care about your laws. 
I don't care how I am supposed to live my life. He basically looks and says, these things are right in my own eyes. And here's what's interesting in in the book of Judges. This is a small little fact, but it's really fascinating when I learned about it this week. Is you probably, if you've been coming, you've seen this phrase over and over and over again. And it starts chapter 13, verse 1. Starts like all the other cycles. And again, the Israelites, what? Did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you realize that that's actually the last time the phrase is used in that way? It shows up again at the end of the book of Judges. In the very last verse in the book of Judges, it's phrased this way. In those days, everyone did what was evil in their own eyes. Or did what was right in their own eyes. And so here's what that shows us. It teaches us something about the definition of sin. We see that contrast between the eyes of the Lord and our own eyes. And what it teaches us is that sin is not ultimately, it does not ultimately consist of violating our own conscience, our own personal standards, our culture standards, but rather sin actually consists of violating God's standards and God's law. And I know some of you are like, whoa! (laughs) Because you see, I know that flies in the face of modern and secular thinking. Because modern and secular thinking says, no, 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 I make the rules. I determine what is right and wrong in my own life. In other words, it's my own eyes that determines what is sin and what is not and what is good and what is evil. With all due respect, think about that just for a second. Just think about that. Because common sense actually contradicts that. Even if we throw out the Bible, let's just throw out the Bible for a second and think. If evil is only determined by our own eyes, how can you tell the Nazis that it was wrong to exterminate the Jews? Because they thought they were right. They thought they were doing justice for the wrongs that had been done. You see it? You see, the Bible comes and corrects that and gives us which I believe is the right answer, and it says God is the one who says what is right and wrong, and sin is actually defined as violating God's law and God's will for us. Martin Luther King, he got this, It's interesting in his letter, if you've ever read it, if not, you totally should. It's from his letter from the Birmingham jail. And listen to what he says. Why am I in jail? How do we know that a particular human law is unjust? You know what he's, this is what he says. The only way you can judge whether human law is unjust is whether it's in accordance with God's law. Because if there wasn't God's law, how would you decide which laws are unjust? This is Martin Luther King. There would be no way to judge, he says. Friends, there is a moral law. And what God sees is sin, 
is sin, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what the so-called experts say, and regardless of what the culture agrees on. You see, self-absorption is revealed in your life when you refuse to listen to God and how he says that your life should work best. And so here's an application question. How are you justifying sin in your life? How are you rationalizing sin? And I want you to particularly think about those things that don't look bad in your own eyes. Things that we often do without blinking an eye, thinking, whatever. Worry, bitterness, pride, materialism. See, as we start to go down those roads, we realize how our self-absorption is revealed as we neglect to follow God and what He lays out for us in His Word. Secondly, the potential uh, problem for self-absorbed people. What, what is the potential problem? Well, there are a couple things, but one of the things we see here um, is that one of the worst things a self-absorbed person can experience is success. And we see it in verse 14. It says, The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson okay, and gives Samson this new power and he breaks out of the, the ropes and he ends up escaping and killing all the Philistines. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 is actually a song. It's a miniature song. Look at it. It's indented in your announcement sheet. What do you notice by looking at the song? Okay, notice the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. God gave him that power. What do you notice about the song? What's missing? God! Samson basically looks at the song and he says, this is all about me. There's no reference to God. He's saying, doesn't give him any credit at all. Samson's basically saying, I'm the man. I did this. And he has this incredible military success, but all that success does is reinforce his self-absorption. Friends, success is one of the biggest dangers for selfish people. And you see why that is. Because as we start to have success, we, go, we, we grow confident in ourselves and we start to look and say, I did this. God, I am strong. And we start to become less and less dependent and less and less grateful for what God has done in our lives. You see, one of the surest signs in ways that you can identify your self-absorption is look at the lack of thankfulness and gratitude in your own life, not only for the people around you, but mainly for your gratitude for God and what He has done. Now, we need to be careful because that doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for success and blessing. You totally should. That's a good thing. We need to pray that God would bless us and give us success. But what we learn here is that God might actually be demonstrating goodness and kindness and love for us when He withholds success from us. 
He might be demonstrating His love for us when we actually experience hard things in our lives because in doing so, could God not be taking the jackhammer, so to speak, and breaking up that foundation of self-absorption in our life? You see, maybe something has happened in your life that you're experiencing currently at the moment and you're saying, God, how could you do this horrible thing to me? How could you bring this horrible thing into my life? Or maybe you're saying, God, why would you hold this good, withhold this good thing from me? Is it not possible that an all-loving, all-knowing, all-wise and gracious God could be withholding success from you? Or maybe bringing something hard into your life in order to shake you and bring you out of your complacency in order to pull you out of your self-absorption. That's the third thing. We've seen the picture, the problem, and thirdly, the cure or the remedy. And what's interesting is if you look at the passage, Samson, he's in bad shape at one point after killing a lot of men. He's dehydrated. It looks like he's going to die. And what does God do? He changes circumstances in a sense and gives him this spring of water and in a sense revives him and brings him back to life. And you would think that a change of circumstances is all of a sudden going to maybe bring him out of his self-absorption that he would be like, God, look at all you've done for me. But look at chapter 16, verse 1. He goes and hires a prostitute. And here's why I bring that up. We think, oftentimes, and we're naive to think, that a simple change of circumstances, we would be different. So we say things like, I wouldn't be so self-absorbed and I would actually change if I can just get through this semester and get to the summer and where I'm going to be. I'll be fine. Or if I can just get out of this relationship or I can just get new friends or if someone would just give me a second chance. What's the problem with that line of thinking? Well, the problem is is we're blaming and looking outside of ourselves and outside at our circumstances in order to change us. And the problem's not our circumstances. The Bible says the problem is our heart. It's this inner selfishness and self-absorption. It's what's on the inside. And the only way to undo our self-absorption in our heart is to shock it with pure love and grace. That's the only way it's going to happen. How do we do that? How do you shock your love with pure love, your heart with pure love and grace? Well, we've got to see the greater Samson. You see, the Bible says all, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament points us forward to Jesus. The book of Judges actually points us, and this story on Samson points us to the greater Samson, Jesus Christ, who will come and does come, and his own people actually come to him, bind him, betray him, and turn him over to his enemies, just like Samson. And like Samson, Jesus at any moment 
could have broken out of those ropes that were binding him and taken down every single person that was around him. But he doesn't. He lets them do it. He lets them betray him. He lets them bind him. He lets them nail him to a cross and he doesn't resist and he doesn't fight back. And you know why he doesn't fight back? John chapter 10, it says, No one takes my life from me. I'm not a victim. I lay my life down at my own, on my own accord. Why does Jesus lay his life down willingly and die? Well, he does it for you. And what we see in Jesus is actually the complete opposite of self-absorption. I mean, think about it. Jesus is not just giving up a little time or you know, giving someone a ride, so to speak, to something. Jesus is actually giving up his life. We see the epitome of someone self-denial and sacrifice. He's giving his life for someone else. And you know who he dies for? self-absorbed, narcissistic people like me and you. And I want you to consider that it's that sort of sacrifice. It's what we see in the life of Jesus. That grace and that kind of love that is to shock our heart. And it's the only love and the only grace and the only sacrifice that's going to jar us in such a way that it actually pulls us outside of ourselves so that we start loving and serving God and loving and serving the people around us. You're probably familiar, I just can't think of a better illustration than Les Mis. Many of you have probably seen that or at least familiar with the story Victor Hugo's famous novel. It's very popular, but the main character in the story is Jean Valjean. He was in prison for 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread in order to provide for his family. He gets out of prison and actually finds himself at the home of a priest who takes him in and cares for him, feeds him, gives him shelter, takes him in as if he's his own son. One night, Valjean gets up in the middle of the night and he goes and he grabs every piece of silver that he can and he puts it in his bag because he's stealing it from him. All of a sudden, the priest comes down the steps, confronts him, and instead of saying, I'm sorry, Valjean basically decks him with a right hook, takes off out, out the door, and runs away. Later on, the police show up, Valjean's with them, and the police say, this man, talking to the priest, says that you gave him the silver. And the priest said, yes, that's absolutely correct. I gave him all the silver. In fact, Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. Why didn't you take them too? And at that moment in the movie, when it's Valjean and the priest, and you can imagine that kind of love and grace, Valjean begins to weep. And you know what the priest says? He looks at him and says, Now go be who you are. Valjean goes from being this self-absorbed thief who cared only for himself to being a generous, sacrificial man 
Because in the movie, he actually acquires all this wealth. And he starts to share that wealth with the people that work for him. He gives them health insurance. He provides them meals. He gives them shelter. He gives them clothes. And at one point, if you've read the book or seen the movie, he encounters this prostitute who is, has a disease and who is dying, and he brings her in and he cares for her until her death, and then actually adopts his child, her child, as his own. What did that? What changed this self-absorbed man? The trigger that changed this man was love and grace. You see, love, friends, is the antidote for our self-absorption. And think about it. If self-absorption in Jean Valjean's life began to crumble as he interacted with the priest who showed him human love, how much more would our self-absorption crumble as we experience the incredible grace and love of God for sinners like me and you? Because the love of God says that He pursues us with a relentless love. And that He pursues us with a love for messy, broken people and loves us unconditionally. You see, friends, when we experience that love, when the love of Jesus becomes real to your heart, then you no longer have to one-up people in all your conversations and make it all about you. Because you're secure in Jesus' love for you, you can actually be concerned about them and actually make the story about them and what's going on in their life. Or when you experience this kind of love that Jesus offers us in the Gospel when you're hurt and when you're criticized or wounded by another person, you don't have to retaliate. You don't have to seek revenge. You don't have to settle the score. But you can actually forgive because Jesus forgave you. The Gospel and the love that we see in Jesus frees us from not treating and using people for our own selfish gain. But it actually frees us to move out and love and serve the people around us. You see, the Gospel, friends, is not just good news that God forgives you. It is. But it's also good news that God frees you from you. You think about that. Let's pray.